You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I did something this week that I have never done before. After a week of working on a sermon, I threw it away. Um, Isaiah 58 is a beautiful passage, but I'm going to leave it for you to discover in your small groups. I could not escape the strong sense that the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk about something else today. And so I am. What I want to talk about is what we believe about marriage and why those beliefs aren't worth dividing over. And as I do, I want to remind you today of the terrifying and joyful truth of Palm Sunday, that God's on a rescue mission, that the Son of God came and took on flesh to go to the cross, to die for our sin, and then to sit, to sit with us. And I believe he's here today, sitting in our midst through his Holy Spirit. Would you pull out a Bible and open up to John chapter 7, verse 53? It's the last verse of John 7. You find it on page 870. And I'm going to read uh, this morning for you, for us, verse 53 there, all the way down through verse 11 of chapter 8. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen closely. We're hearing God's holy word. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. But the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. When the people brought this woman to Jesus, the text tells us in verse 6, it was a test. Now the Bible will use language like that, test. And when it does, what the Bible means about a test is it's something that makes someone's essence plain. It's something that reveals the true essence of of something or someone. Test. And so this is the test. Jesus, we brought you a woman who was caught in adultery. Moses says it's wrong. What are you going to do? 
Are you going to condemn her and lose your favor with the crowds, the people? Or are you going to affirm her and stand with us and uphold a principle? Are you with us or are you with them? Are you about principle or are you about people? Tough challenge for anybody. What will Jesus do? Neither. In the brilliance of our master and savior, Jesus, he does neither. He turns to this woman, aware that what she's done is wrong. He doesn't affirm it. He says, go and sin no more. But he turns to this woman, unwilling to condemn her. He says to her, neither do I condemn you. And then what else does Jesus do? He addresses everybody else, all the people that are sitting around this ugly circle of condemnation and shame. And he looks at each of one. He says, if any of you is without a sin... And go ahead and throw the first stone. What's he doing? He's reaching across this vast social and moral divide to embrace everybody in the tension that Jesus is sitting in. He wants everybody because what he wants is he wants to be able to forgive everybody because this is his mission. It's a mission of grace. Now, this is the test, and it so beautifully reveals the essence of Jesus, so beautifully reveals the essence that John has been writing about from the very first chapter of his gospel when he says that this one, he's the son of God, and he's full of grace and truth, both of those things. He's the only one. But he calls us to live in that same tension as well, doesn't he? And I I want you to think about this because some of us really, we're real good at being truthers. Some of us are just really good at being gracers. But our Savior, Jesus Christ, is full of grace and true. When you and I run around, in some cases more comfortable with people, in other cases more comfortable with principle, and, and, and... implicitly try to identify are you with us or against us and draw up these teams we're actually putting other people to the test aren't we we're trying to figure out who they really are but i would suggest to you that it's us who are being tested in that moment we are being tested are we living with the tensions that our savior lives with or are we pulling to one side or the other many of you saw on march 17th, the news and AP article, our denomination just hit a tipping point, 171 presbyteries as the vote has gone. We've got a simple majority now so that the um, change to the book of order that was proposed last summer in Detroit has now been uh, written into the Presbyterian Church USA book of order. Marriage is now defined as, quote, two people traditionally between a man and a woman. If you want more information about that, go to our website. But what I want to acknowledge is that when we saw that news report, many of us rejoiced. We did. And many of us grieved. We did. What I want to propose today is that this doesn't have to change us here at UPC at all. 
Because the great strength of UPC is that we have always put Jesus ahead of our social and political agendas. Jesus is what we're about here. We've always put Jesus ahead of our differences. One of the things I love about UPC, and I tell our new members classes, uh, if all of us in the pew were to go out and vote on the same day, we would cancel each other out. But we still vote. <laughs> I think this is our test right now. I think this is our test. It's going to reveal the essence of this church. And like they were watching Jesus in the temple courtyard that day, don't be deceived. Seattle is watching us. We'll know we're failing this test if our language lapses into us versus them. We'll know we're failing the test if we start to put principle at the expense of people or, frankly, people at the expense of principle. We'll know we're failing this test if we fall into the framing, the lousy framing that the culture presents us as it presented Jesus that day when they kind of elbow us and said, don't you think we should condemn, dot, dot, dot? Or don't you think we should affirm, dot, dot, dot? As you can imagine, I'm getting all kinds of letters and emails uh, about the subject, and I have for the last couple of years. We've had classes about this topic. We've had conversations about this topic. I hope you've had a chance to participate in some of them. But now, I'm a little concerned that we are pulling away from one another on the left and on the right because of this one issue, this one issue. I'm getting emails in which people are saying, you know, because of this, I can't serve anymore at UPC. I can't give anymore at UPC. I can't worship anymore at UPC. And I want to tell you, it's almost equal on both sides of the political spectrum. Progressives and conservatives write me weekly and say things like that. Is that UPC? We stand for Jesus. And we believe Jesus is bigger than our differences. Now, The question is, how do we get through a test like this with Jesus? How do we get through a test like this so that at the end of the day, what is revealed in our essence is Jesus? Isn't that our mission? This week, a friend of mine asked me, George, what do you think Jesus believes about marriage? which is a really good question. It was a very honest question. And so I actually, I answered. I said, this is what I think Jesus believes about marriage. That's what I think. And I, I thought, I'm gonna share my answer with you as well and just be transparent with you this morning about this. You deserve to know. Now, you don't have to agree with me. You don't. But I want you to hear this. Two, two convictions I shared with him that day. Two convictions. The first is, I believe that Jesus believes marriage is between a man and a woman. I believe that. Now, some of my friends say, you know, Jesus never spoke about same-sex marriage. And that may be true, but if it is true, it's an argument from silence. And you know arguments from silence don't get us very far. 
But I'm not sure it's entirely true because there was a moment in which Jesus was asked a question about divorce. And he said, you know, to answer a good question about divorce like that, I have to actually remind you the true nature of marriage. And what Jesus says there, we can read in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. He says, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2. That's, I believe, God's definition of marriage. And if Jesus didn't have to talk about it a lot in his day, it's because there was a, a massive consensus in the Jewish culture about that as our definition for marriage. But you'll know that that was not the consensus in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, the Greco-Roman world uh, celebrated nurturing, committed, uh, same-sex marriages. Paul almost certainly understood that Nero himself had taken a male uh, partner named Sporus to be his husband. Same-sex marriage. Not entirely new. Uh, 2,000 years ago. And so Paul, as he, as, as he carries the good news of Jesus out of the Jewish culture into this Greco-Roman milieu, then he starts to translate his understanding of what Jesus believes about marriage into the terms that are relevant to that culture. And then you hear more about it. What I'm saying to you is I think Jesus knows what he believes. He is the truth. And I believe he believes marriage is between a man and a woman. But there's a second conviction that I feel is strongly. And I share this with my friend also. It's that Jesus loves those with same-sex attraction and deeply. I don't think there's anybody here who would dispute the fact that Jesus loves everybody infinitely. But I would argue that that love comes out more strongly because more visible for those who struggle the most. We see Jesus doing that with people. Now, when I talk to my gay friends, none of them ever says to me, I would, George, I would choose this. No one has ever said that to me. Just the opposite. There's a struggle there. Sometimes the church makes that struggle harder. Jesus doesn't want us to do that. Jesus stands with this woman as her advocate. You want to throw a stone? You throw it at me. I'm standing next to her. He defends her. Because he loves her. See, he's calling her and them and us to grace. Jesus never has a harsh word, never a harsh syllable for anybody who's struggling with sexual sin. I read the whole Bible multiple times. You will not find it there. What you will find is chapter after chapter when he takes on the so-called religious experts and he heats them up with so much criticism, the paint in the Jerusalem temple is probably peeling. Read Matthew 23. You're not going to find it on a Hallmark card. And, of course, the familiar passage in John 3, we read, God did not send his world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's my mission. Not to condemn the world for being the world, but to save. I feel strongly about that. See, I think Jesus knows what he believes, but he leads with grace. Grace. Because he's sent in love. So let me ask myself, you know, what can you expect of me? I'm, you, I'm here as a pastor and leader. So you have a right to know what to expect of me around this. 
And here's my commitment to you. I commit to to do my very best here what Jesus did there. That is to know what I believe about marriage, but to lead with grace. Because that's Jesus' mission and it's mine too. And I guess I want to call you to it. What does this mean? It means I can't officiate a same-sex marriage. I can't. Uh, But I can go to the wedding, and I will. Invite me. I'll go. Um, I will always do my best to teach the Bible as plain and simply as I can. Um, And yet, I will promise to pursue same-sex family members, same-sex friends, same-sex church members, same-sex neighbors with Christ's love. I will celebrate our friends. Uh, UPC has been blessed by many, many homosexual members over the years, and it's a gift to us. We'll celebrate it. I'll baptize your babies. Um, uh, I'll stand with you as an advocate. I will. That's what you can expect of me. Well, let me ask you, where are you? Because I can't do this alone. I want UPC to be a safe place for all people, whatever you wrestle with, because I want you to find Jesus in the middle of that. But so we got to do it together. What about you? What should we expect of each other here? You know, what's our essence? What will this test reveal? Well, it has not escaped my notice that some of us right now are gathering to actively stir up this question at UPC. And I want to ask you not to participate. I don't question the motive, but I I deeply question the outcome and the cost. Nobody has ever gained anything by schism, not on either side of the divide. At UPC, our faith is bigger than our politics. Our mission is not to get everybody in this room to agree on any social issue. It's to actually get out of this room and to share hope in Jesus Christ with the world for which he died. So I want to tell you a story, finally. Um, last December, I was invited to a meeting of high-level leaders in our denomination. They were seminary presidents, editors, scholars, and some pastors. Ten of us, five progressives, five conservatives, locked in a room together. And the question was, well, what does it mean for us to be in covenant relationship with one another now? Well, what does it mean for us to worship Jesus together though we deeply disagree on the question of marriage. What does it mean for us to serve Jesus together? So I said, yes, it sounded constructive to me. I want to be involved. Um, I didn't find out until after I said yes that they were requiring me to present a paper. Uh, But since I did the work on it, I want to read this paper to you, and I want to close with this. Uh, But before I do... I'm gonna, you don't have to turn with me, but I want to read the background passage on which my reflection is based. It's in Acts chapter 20 where we meet a curious little character, little known in the Bible. He's a young adult, uh, and he's not sure if he's really an insider or an outsider, this thing that you and I call church. So I'm going to read Acts 20, verse 7 and following. On the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with them. Since he intended to leave the next day, he continued speaking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were meeting. A young man named Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, began to sink off into a deep sleep while Paul talked still longer. 
Overcome by sleep, he fell to the ground three floors below and was picked up dead. That's Eutychus. But Paul went down and bending over him, took him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And then Paul went upstairs, and after he had broken bread and eaten, he continued to converse with them until dawn, then he left. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive and were not a little comforted. Yeah, I should think. My reflection begins with a question that we were all asked to address. What is a fitting biblical or theological metaphor for where we are now as a communion, as a church? So I write, Eutychus. The sorry little guy, a teenager, I guess, who couldn't get a seat at the meeting in Troas. They'd all been taken. The room was filled with people who all seemed to know what the meeting was about. As for Eutychus himself, he wasn't quite one of them. The seating plan made that clear. And he didn't really know what the meeting was about. But he was curious. Or maybe we should say he was hopeful. Hopeful that it would be about something of interest to him or something somehow helpful. So he found his own spot to sit, or perch, rather. The last seat available was a seat at the window, three floors up from the ground. I wonder if he squeezed over from inside the room or if he climbed up by a ledge or a tree from the outside. But either way, there he was, halfway in, halfway out. And the meeting droned on. Quote, a young man named Eutychus who was sitting in the window began to sink off into a deep sleep while Paul talked still longer. Overcome by sleep, he fell to the ground three floors below and was picked up dead. That's Acts 20, verse 9. I say Eutychus offers us a metaphor for our denominational communion right now, but I guess I don't really mean Eutychus himself. I'm thinking more of the window. I'm thinking more of the room on the other side of the window. I'm thinking of the meeting inside. Before explaining, I should first admit, I like the meeting. I wish I could have been there. Imagine the Apostle Paul, first century believers, the proclamation of God's word, the sacramental breaking of bread. No, I think our scrappy friend was right to claw for a seat in that meeting. It's in meetings like this that I found hope for my life and the world. I've been called to such meetings and I'm committed to them. But let's be honest, the meeting killed Eutychus. I love to read that to Presbyterians. <laughs> There's a conversation going on in our denomination. It's gone on for a long time now. The night is growing late. It doesn't just fill a single meeting, but meetings upon meetings. It shows up in Presbyterian session conversations, shows up over a cup of coffee in the fellowship hall or over an open car door in the parking lot. It even shows up in barely recognizable ways in conversations that are really trying to be about other conversations, but can't for some reason. And I think we would all agree it's an important conversation. It's worth a meeting or two. We have to discern the faithful beliefs and practices we're being called to adopt. We can't just withhold belief or practice. What if Eutychus were gay? Let's talk about that. It's not hard to imagine. After all, our gay brothers and sisters in Christ have less often fallen out of our windows as they have been pushed. We've pushed, and the fall is long, the ground hard. If we are falling asleep, it's not just because the evening is long, it's because we are so very tired of being witnesses, even accessories to such acts. So the conversation's about inclusiveness 
And that makes it important. We know enough of Jesus to understand that. And the conversation is about faithfulness. That's important for us all too. How may we, how must we, respond faithfully to the incarnate God, crucified and risen? Clearly the conversation wasn't about how the followers of Jesus could make themselves appear more relevant to a pagan society. Had relevance been the concern, young Eutychus would have been given a pillow in the front row. No, this is the Apostle Paul teaching, the guy who wrote Romans. Yes, including chapter 1. And he runs on with breathless enthusiasm about how the world has been overcome in judgment and redeemed in grace. About the terrifying and joyful encounter that we all must have with Jesus. He will reorient you as he is reorienting me. Our conversation is dangerous. Our conversation about inclusiveness or sexual wholeness or marriage or ordination or denomination is really hard to have. People get hurt. We lose our way. Part of the problem is it's not just our conversation. The society around us is having it too. Sometimes we're better at it in the wider society than in the church. Sometimes much worse. But there's an interaction in the chambers of our souls between these two conversations and their echoes and reverberations that confuse us. Jesus reframed the question of his day and culture. He couldn't answer a question that bounced from premises he rejected. But we're not as adept at this as Jesus. We absorb and repeat the cultural vibrations. Far too often the noise in our meeting rooms is just a recapitulation of political positions and anxieties in the world around us. A quote conservative says, unless we stress our opposition to gay marriage, we cannot stand for truth and this can no longer be my church. A quote, progressive says, unless we bless gay marriage, we cannot be inclusive and this can no longer be my church. But I wonder how we can do either without losing the values that motivate both. I wonder how the world can hear us speaking God's one word in Jesus when the talk in our meetings is so full of the same words we use in society and when in here, nearly as much as out there, no one has ears to hear anything other than a vindication of their thin political position on the left or on the right. At the end of our long night of talking, those outside the room are prepared for us to announce that our political agendas have become our God. God help us if they have. But finally, let's note, in the end, Eutychus is saved. He's not saved by the meeting's inclusiveness, quote, we open a window for you. And he's not saved by doctrine, quote, sit and listen until you agree with me. No. He's saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whose death was given for Eutychus and whose life now appears active within his fallen flesh. And apparently this happened. Because someone had the sense to give up the meeting, push through the narcoleptic crowd, race down the stairs and out into the night. Someone brings enough faith and love to preoccupy himself with a person in actual need, in an actual crisis. And they bend over the tragic boy with nothing but the good news of Jesus. It's time for us to be the church that gets out of this room. Let's do it together if we can, but let's hear the good news and let's take our faith and love outside into the dark and see what Jesus does with it when we bend over and take hurting people into his arms. Will you pray with me?
Lord Jesus Christ, you've led us to a humble place, but it's a place of freedom. If we could sit with you in our anxiety, in our shame, in our brokenness, and hear you say to us, I do not condemn you. If we can sit with you, having seen that you are trustworthy, now that we're able to listen to your good word for us, we might embrace the truth that we can go and sin no more. So we pray today that you'll draw us together around you, Jesus, as a church, University Presbyterian Church. We pray that our essence would be a church in which it is possible to disagree and always safe. We pray for a world that needs to see not a bunch of people who agree with one another, but a bunch of people who are drawn together by the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us be those people. Expose us to your truth. Expose us to your grace that we might follow you. In your name we pray and for your glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.